to Around Kansas. I'm Deb Goodrich. And I'm Michelle Martin. And we have a great show for you today. First, a little housekeeping. I want to remind you that the Santa Fe Trail 200 events are in full swing now. There is a fantastic concert coming up in Council Grove on June 11th. So this will be the night before the symphony in the Flint Hills. So a lot of you will be there uh, to spend the night in the area and you can take advantage of this great concert by our honorary chair, Michael Martin Murphy. And this will be held in the new amphitheater. Um, it's been redone totally. It's going to be amazing right there on the river in Council Grove, right on the river walk. So you can go to Eventbrite and get tickets. And I think there is a link on our Facebook page. If not, there will be. So hope to see you there. So we've got a great show talking about one of our favorite places. Isn't that right, Michelle? <laughs> yes, Deb. Uh, Kansas has such an incredible and varied history. And one group of individuals who made Kansas their home uh, during the territorial period in different ways, and especially after the Civil War, are African Americans. And today, we're going to be talking about African American uh, migration to Kansas after the Civil War. So, of course, the most famous place that saw this immigration was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a national heritage historic area, site. historic area. What is it? What's the right name, Michelle? It's a National Historic Site. Okay, so that's the town. It's not just one building, it's actually the town. And right behind me, and I, I can't remember who took this picture, but this was at a reunion in Nicodemus a couple of years ago. And these are the Buffalo Soldiers, the reenacting group that was started by our dear friend who has passed on, Gil Alexander. And uh, they do a fantastic job um, interpreting their ancestors' history. We had them at Fort Wallace when we did the um, rededication or, or the dedication rather of our new wing of the museum. And when we went out to the cemetery for Sunday's event, we had a friend of ours um, who is actually Apache and he was wearing white in the cemetery and drumming. And then we had the cavalry leading the riderless horse. We had our friend Mo Brings Plenty um, leading the riderless horse to represent the Plains tribes. And then we had the Buffalo Soldiers. And when you had the sounds of all these people together, oh my God, it was, it was incredible. So this is a fantastic group behind me. And behind me is actually a historic image of Nicodemus uh, during its heyday of settlement in the late 1870s after folks began arriving and of course taking advantage of the ability to farm and start to put together businesses and shops. And so this actually uh, takes us a little further back in time. So Nicodemus, um, again, was just one of the places in Kansas. There were little communities, especially in Western Kansas, all over the state that saw exodusters. There were some um, just south of us near Scott Lake. There were some um, that were east of us, I believe in Gove County. So there, there's these little communities all over, but Nicodemus is the most famous, maybe because of the involvement of Pap Singleton. 
Yes, um, and Pap Benjamin, Pap Singleton as he was called, is really one of these really fascinating individuals in the post-war period who begins to look for new places for African-Americans to move, especially those who were formerly enslaved individuals who were now seeking freedom even further away from the South. Um, and also we, we don't just see formerly enslaved individuals heading West after the war. We see individuals, African-American individuals who had lived in parts of the North and East also looking for new opportunity. And the West held out that promise, especially a place like Kansas, because they could take advantage of the Homestead Act. And Pat Singleton does a fantastic job in marketing the promise that Kansas holds out to potential settlers and homesteaders. And he literally leads groups of these homesteaders on various exoduses. Therefore, they're called the exodusters and leads them out of the South into the West, into what would hopefully be a new promised land in Kansas. Of course, not all of these settlers went to farm. There were a lot who were um, had trades before that. So in Topeka, not far from uh, right downtown, is Tennessee town. And that was made up of many of these people seeking new lives. So that is still a, a really important piece of the fabric of Topeka and one of those unique communities in the town. Well, and you know, Deb, that's a great point. Um, and of course, Tennessee town, uh, you know, gets started during the territorial period. Mm -hmm. And so, and what's interesting, our viewers may want to go back on our Facebook page and uh, check out a piece I did in February for African American History Month. And I talked about a woman named Anne Chatiot, Anne Chatiot. And um, she was an African-American woman, had been a slave and became the wife of Clement Shadio. And they were the first, some of the first settlers in the Topeka area. And when she passes on, uh, she's lauded in the newspapers as the first African-American settler in, in the Topeka area. And she was much beloved by all who knew her. So, you know, our, our roots, our African-American roots in the state of Kansas run very deep. And so the, the African-American communities that came after the Civil War and this exoduster period, they're building on the hopes and dreams of those individuals who made those treks before them. And during the war, we see so many enslaved people heading to Kansas for freedom, whether they're being brought across the border by John Brown, whether they're coming across on their own. And don't forget in 1861, when the Muscogee leader Abako Yahola leads not only his Muscogee and other native people out of Indian territory, there are many African-Americans and Afro-Indigenous people with him. And so they come into the territory, uh, into actually the state of Kansas in 1861. So Kansas has a long history of African-American settlement and migration. And many of the soldiers who served in the, the 10th um, U.S. Cavalry remained in Kansas as well. You know, we talked about Reuben Waller a few days ago. Reuben's just one of those who stayed in Kansas and made their lives here after they served in the Army. 
And some of those, uh, like Gil Alexander's ancestor, went to Nicodemus um, mm -hmm. after he had fought in the war, and that's where he settled and became a businessman. But they they were all over the place. They were they were all over Kansas. Yeah, and I think that's something that gets sometimes left out when we talk about the post-Civil War period in the West and we talk about migration and we talk about movement of people and expansion. We hear about um, we hear about soldiers coming to settle in Kansas. We also hear a lot about different immigrant groups coming in. We hear about the you know the Volga Germans. We hear about uh, Russians. We hear about the, the Norwegians, the Swedes, and other groups. In Southeast Kansas, we hear about the folks coming from the from the Balkans and the Mediterranean, the Italians, yeah. you know, and the Italians, yeah, coming in to work in the coal mining industries. Um, but one of the things that's really important is not to forget the contributions of um, African American men, women, and children, and who made their way and the the journeys they took, especially after the war, to get to Kansas were fraught with danger. And that is one of the reasons they traveled in large groups together for protection and safety. Um, it was in some cases when they would get to Missouri and they would have to cross the rivers to get into Kansas or when they would get to the border to try to cross into Kansas, the feelings of animosity along the border between Kansans and Missourians still ran incredibly high after the war. And you read newspaper stories and you read personal accounts of groups of African-American uh, migrants being stopped at the border and being harassed, being beaten, being robbed, um, or being turned away and told they can't cross the border, yet they continue to make their way to Kansas. And I think that says a lot about the idea of Kansas and what Kansas embodied to people. And it goes back to our territorial period and that fight, free, free state versus slave state. How were we gonna enter the union? And because we came in, the union is a free state. I think Kansas becomes this beacon for people from all over, um, especially for African-Americans after the war and for immigrants um, later on as well. I think one of the important points is that, um, that you're uh, touching on, Kansas offered opportunity. You know, and there would have been no question of free or slave state had there not been opportunity. There would have been no reason to come here, no way to sustain yourself and your family had there not been opportunity. One of the coolest stories I think I've heard is from our friend Kevin Wilmot. And I think it was his mm -hmm. great grandfather who traded horses at Fort Riley. And he would buy the horses that couldn't be broke to gunshots or, you know, the different things required of a cavalry horse. So he was a horse trader. And that brings into play the opportunities around forts. And you and I are so familiar with yes. the forts in Kansas. And that op offered opportunity for employment, not just for the soldiers, but for that whole host of businesses that were necessary for a fort to operate. Yes, I mean, when we look at whether it be Fort Leavenworth and the community of Leavenworth or Fort Scott and the community of Fort Scott or Fort Riley and Junction City, 
when we look at our military, those military installations, um, yeah, they are, they become their own economic hub, their own economic engine. And they do, they attract people to come and settle around them because they know when soldiers are able to leave post, uh, they have a need for food and clothing and other kinds of things they can't get on post from a sutler. Uh, that there's going to be financial benefit to putting together businesses and settling in those areas. And, you know, um, I think when you, one of the things that I think is amazing with Nicodemus is when folks are coming in, um, they're taking advantage of, and they obviously have done that reconnaissance ahead of time to know Nicodemus's proximity to the Solomon River. And they knew that was going to give them the ability to have access to the water they needed to begin to uh, build farms. Uh, because for many of the people, farming was an activity they were very familiar with. And so come in and replicate what you know to build a good basis for yourself and then branch off from there. And so, um, yeah, so they, they had all of this reconnaissance information ahead of time. They had leadership. Also, they had a lot of sponsorship. Um, I was doing some research for one of my graduate seminars and I was looking at how the Exodusture movement was sustained, and it was partially sustained by individuals um, within the movement, like Pap Singleton, who would go out and fundraise and would go out and go to individuals who had deep pockets to go ahead and get the money necessary. So when these families arrived in places like Nicodemus, um, and, and all over in Kansas and in, in the all African-American settlements that folks had a little bit of money to get themselves started. So they weren't coming in with absolutely nothing. And so it's really fascinating uh, how this really does become a movement. And Kansas is one of the big, big meccas, big hub for that. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's a huge piece of Kansas history. And we urge you to learn more. Like Michelle said, we have stories archived, including the ones she mentioned. We have stories archived on the Buffalo Soldiers and the um, Battle at Island Mound. Um, so many of the things that they were involved in, Beecher Island, where the mm -hmm. Buffalo Soldiers rode to the rescue of Forsyth Scouts. There are a lot of stories archived. So if you visit our website, you can search those out and learn a lot more. Visit the sites because we have some tremendous sites, Nicodemus included, but several others that also tell pieces of that story. Yeah, and one of the, I think the important things as well is when we look at Nicodemus, for example, what I love, what you see there is not just what's left of a 19th century town. You see how the community worked its way into the 20th century and how it held itself together uh, for a sustained period of time. And, you know, you can read the history books and they'll tell you when the railroad lines, you know, railroad lines were supposed to come right through Nicodemus and then they get relocated and they're going to go, you know, further north or further south. When the rail, when the rail line shifts, the, the fortunes of the community change because in the 19th century, okay. the rail line was everything. It was your lifeblood. It was an artery pulsing in and out of your community. And so if that rail line gets moved too far away, it makes it really difficult. But what I think is amazing is the people stayed on anyway and they persevered. 
um, they had what they called the pillars of, they had their pillars that were important. Um, commerce, community, religion, education, and family. And they worked so terribly hard to build those pillars in the community. And actually, if you visit the site today, you can see some of the physical embodiment of those pillars that were important to those first families. We want you to drop by Nicodemus, say hello, and tell them that Michelle sent you. <laughs> and we'll take a break and we'll be, we will be back in just a few minutes. And we're going to talk about some geocaching. Stay with us. Howdy, I'm Seth Hayes and welcome to my hometown from then to now. Council Grove has a rich history as deep as the prairie tall grass. Spend the day visiting 25 historic sites or explore the unique shops and restaurants or mosey out of town along the Santa Fe Trail. Y'all visit my hometown, Council Grove, in the heart of the Flint Hills. Okay, looks like it's time for our tour. Welcome to the Fort Wallace Museum. Here at the museum, you're gonna find some really interesting stuff like our replica stagecoach from the Butterfield Overland Dispatch. We've got facades from the fort buildings. We've got an 1870s flag. There's a plesiosaur that was discovered locally. We've got the Ray Pump Organ Collection. We're a little bee place with a great big story and we'd love to have you. everyone. It's Discovering History Monday on Around Kansas. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Deb Goodrich. And behind me is the Mahaffey Stagecoach Stop in Olathe, Kansas. And you see happy sheep and red buds blooming. And it's just a beautiful place no matter what time of year you're there. And behind me is the historical marker for Fort Zara. And I'm sure you are wondering, what do Fort Zara and Mahaffey have to have in common or have to do with one another besides the fact they're in Kansas. Deb, why don't you let people in on the secret? Well, they are both on the Santa Fe Trail route, for one thing, and they are both sites of some pretty cool geocaches. Now, if you're like me and you're ignorant, <laughs> I know nothing about geocaching. I still can't claim to know a lot but as usual, that doesn't stop me from talking about it. And I set up a booth at the recent mega event, Mingo Madness in Colby, Kansas. And the geocachers came from literally every corner of the US. There were people from Alaska and Hawaii. There were people from California and New Hampshire, from Florida and Washington state literally every, washed or Texas to North Dakota, literally everywhere. And they're all excited about geocaching. Michelle, do you think you can explain what geocaching is? Maybe between the two of us, we can come up with a reasonable explanation. Sure. Well, my experience with geocaching uh, dates back to my time as director of the Little House on the Prairie Museum. And I knew nothing about geocaching and I would get people who would come in 
uh, to our gift shop and they either were using a smartphone or a little GPS device and they would say, it's in here, where is it? And I'd say, what are you talking about? The cash, the cash. I said, I'm sorry, but uh, we don't keep a lot of cash in the cash register. And they said, what are you <laughs> the cash? The geocache. And so one of our visitors explained to me that they were geocachers and that they use a smartphone app or they have actual little GPS devices and they would be given GPS coordinates for geocaches. And the goal is to go ahead and find the cache, uh, denote and mark that you've been there. And in our case, um, I'm not gonna give away the secret where it, where it was because it's probably still in the same place, but there was a spot where you could open up the cache you could take the items that were there for yourself and then leave new items. And then you noted that you took and received the following items and you dropped off new geocache items. Um, in some cases, people didn't collect the items, they just simply decided they wanted to add to them. Um, we also had a virtual geocache that people could follow and they could mark that they had been there during our times when we were closed. And that one in particular, it led them to one of the buildings outside and the actual geocache was a specific portion of the building. And so people, all they had to do was denote um, in their little geocache log that they had been there and note the time and the place and then they happily went along their way looking for additional geocaches. It is a tremendous way to see America. It is just, uh, you know, there are geocaches all over the US and, and in other places. And you were talking about the items inside the geocaches and a geocache can be a canister, it can be a Tupperware container, just anything that can be watertight and hold little items of swag. That's swag. And so Santa Fe Trail Association has a lot of swag. Some of them are bottle openers, there's pens, there's, um, let me see, coasters and little um, uh, things that you twist off the top of water bottles that are hard to get. Uh, there, we've just got all kinds of cool little things that we put inside the geocaches along the way. And like Michelle said, people will trade items. So you will end up with maybe a wooden coin from the Santa Fe Trail in California because people have picked those mm -hmm. up, traded them and left them off. And I got to tell you, the people that came by the booth were so smart. Most of them had been on sites on the Santa Fe Trail and were bragging like crazy about how wonderful they were. And then about a third of the folks were unfamiliar with the trail. So we were able to give them maps and brochures and all that information that would bring them to the trail and those historic sites. So most of these are planted at or near some historic site on the trail from beginning to end, from Franklin, Missouri, all the way to Santa Fe, taking mm -hmm. the Northern and the Southern routes. So it's just a tremendous way, especially to get young people involved in history yeah. and science and mapping and so many mm -hmm. cool activities and it's outside. 
And, you know, Deb, one thing, when I lived in New Mexico for three years, uh, there are geocaches all over in New Mexico. And one thing I do want to do want to caution folks and just say a little a gentle reminder when you're at a historic site, especially a national historic site, a national park, or especially a place where your geocache may be intermingling or close to archaeological um, sites. Please make sure that you leave footprints, you exchange geocache material, and don't disturb other things around it. Um, I know when I was in New Mexico, there were some issues with some folks who were not being as careful with their geocaching, and there was some destruction of some archaeological material. And so the geocache had to be moved to a different location. Um, but geocaches are a fantastic way, as you said, to get families can do this together. You can do it outside. You can do it wherever you go. You know, let's say you get in the car and you're going to drive to Texas to see grandma for, you know, spring break or go see grandma in the summer. Uh, you can take your geocaching along with you and stop off along the way uh, and do those things when you get there. Um, so it, it makes me want to actually go back to geocaching. I did some when I lived in Kansas and Oklahoma. Now I can tell you when I was at Little House in the Prairie Museum, it was kind of interesting because we had a special subset of geocachers and they were geocachers who were what we affectionately call bonnet heads. And the bonnet heads are those who were extreme Laura Ingalls Wilder devotees. Um, and they not only love reading her works, but they visit all of the sites. And one of the things they like to do is buy up little um, trinket items in the gift shops, and they drop those in the geocaches at the different Laura Ingalls Wilder sites and switch them out. So one time some ladies came in and they had been to DeSmet in South Dakota. And so they took what was in our geocache and they dropped some Laura goodies that were from DeSmet. Um, and so we found, you could tell who the Laura devotees were because they were dropping and leaving and trading different Laura items. And that happens at certain sites. They get, there are these kinds of um, specialty subsets or followings of folks in the geocaching world. And they sometimes leave specific things because they have certain meaning. And that's really fun trying to figure out why people leave what they do in the geocache. Well, that's true for the forts. There are a lot of people mm -hmm. that try to hit the forts all over the country, you know, not just the frontier forts, but but everywhere. And they'll go through and like you said, a magnet or some little memento from some of the forts they visited and, and kind of swap those out along the way. So there are just all kinds of reasons why people geocache. What impressed me was the um, intelligence of everybody that came through. I'd have to say this is definitely a pretty high IQ audience. And there were so many scientists, so many engineers, so many computer techies who came by the table and were fascinated by geocaching. And on either side of me, there were podcasters. And these mm -hmm. guys are very successful podcasters. And one young man who was set up beside me um, had a very Southern accent. And I said, well, where are you from? And he said, Arizona. And I said, no, nah, originally, where are you from originally? And he said, Texas. And I'm, you know, nosy. And I'm like, well, what do you do? Well, he works for the BLM. I'm like, well, that's interesting. What do you do? 
Well, I'm a communication specialist. So he handled the technical stuff for the BLM in, I don't know, 10 states or something. And he was just this, you know, on the surface, this good old boy from Texas. He was so smart. He was talking about satellites. He was talking about all this technical stuff. Honestly, 90% of what he said was over my head. And when he told me what he does with the podcast, he helps people figure out puzzle geocaches and how to create puzzle geocaches. Now, I got no idea about a puzzle geocache, except when he explained it to me, he was speaking very slowly and trying to choose his words so that it would sink in. And I got to say, it really didn't. It was still over my head. So if I can master the simple geocaches, maybe one day, I, I doubt it. <laughs> if there's math involved, I think there was math involved. So you can forget it. I'll, I'll never, I'll never make it to that level. Right. You know, I always joke, there's a reason why I'm a historian, because it doesn't involve complex math, uh, because obviously math was not my strong suit. And my father was, a, my father is a retired science teacher, and so he was very good at math. Uh, so yeah, I did not get the math genes in my family, but I got the history genes and I also got the explorer genes. And so what I like about geocaching and always found fascinating is that it, it can bring together those two passions, exploring and seeing new things yeah. and history. And so, um, you know, it's interesting to me in a way, uh, geocaching reminds me of Pokemon, the Pokemon craze yeah. where you're finding, you know, you use the app and you find the Pokemon and you collect them, except I like geocaching because you actually interact with, Faces more. You actually have the opportunity to inter interact with people if you want to, but also you can swap the items. So I don't know. To me, I feel like there's a little more of a payoff uh, when you're geocaching versus chasing Pokemons. Um, but it's a similar concept, really. And so if you if you like Pokemon and you want to try something different, definitely check out geocaching. Uh, there are different apps available and see what's around. Just start by seeing what's in your neighborhood. You probably would be amazed to see how many are just in your area around you. I'm sure. The Santa Fe Trail has more than 70 geocaches along the route. And if you visit 50 of those and document them, you get this gorgeous coin. It's really beautiful. And it's the, I think it's the 50th anniversary of the designation for the National Trails. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous coin. And believe it or not, we have a lot of people working hard to get those 50 sites so that they can claim wow. one of the coins. Wow. In a way, it's similar to the challenge. In a way, it's similar to a challenge coin. Um, you know, when the National Park Service celebrated its anniversary in uh, 2019, I believe it was, um, you, if you gave a certain number of volunteer hours, you got a special challenge coin that year. Uh, so I, I was happy I was able to get my hours so I could get my Park Service challenge coin. So, hey, geocachers, there's some extra goodies out here, uh, especially connected to the Santa Fe Trail. So, 
you know, document those 50 sites and get that special coin, add that to your collection. Who knows, you may decide to make it part of a geocache one day. That's right. So that's it for today, folks. We've loved having you with us. Hope to see you geocaching along the trail. Maybe we'll see you up at Nicodemus one day. So let us know if you've got something going on in your neighborhood that you would like to share on around Kansas, a site, um, an experience, you know, just let us know about it. Definitely, you can, you can share that information with us on our Facebook page. You can go to our website or you can email us and we will make sure that on our Facebook page and on our website, our email addresses are updated and you can get in contact with us and share your ideas for stories you would like to see on Around Kansas. All right, folks, we're going to bid you farewell and I hope that you have a great, great week. Um, till we see you again on Wednesday, we'll upload the wildlife segment on Wednesday. So hope to see you then. And in the meantime, I'm Deb Goodrich. And I'm Michelle Martin. And we will see you somewhere around, around Kansas. Kansas. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Western Kansas Wildlife Travel Center right here in my hometown of Oakley, Kansas. We're the front door of Western Kansas located on three main highways, I-70, US-83, and US-40. And all those roads lead to history, beautiful scenery, and adventure no matter which direction you go. We now have an IHOP brand that you've trusted up and down the road in all your travels is staffed with local folks, real people, just like you and me, and we're waiting on you to join us. So for fun, adventure, fuel up, fuel your body, and let's have some fun. In 1821, a trade route was opened from Missouri in the United States across prairies and mountains to Mexico. In 2021, we will mark 200 years of epic conflicts and grand adventures, larger-than-life personalities and sweeping landscapes. Join us on an historic journey. The Santa Fe Trail lives on. Find us on social media or santafetrail.org.